Welcome to Truth in the Fog. My name is Bill Nyman. I'm your host again for today. Um, as we have saw, seen in the last few podcasts, I talked a little bit about um, God and the existence of God and how has God revealed himself. So I, I like to talk a little bit about uh, the most fundamental uh, aspect about God, and that is that God is triune. So I'll try to explain a little bit what that means, because um, this is where Christianity differs from all other religions. All other religions might believe in a God, and who is that God? But the God, the God is never triune, because it seems to be a somewhat of an uh, of an odd teaching about about God. But um, to understand why God is and why um, who God is and why he is superior to all, all other gods, we must first believe the most fundamental teaching of the God of the Bible, which is the fact that God is revealed in three persons. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, this is probably the most astounding and at the same time the most confusing teaching or doctrine of the Bible. This particular teaching sets the God of the Bible apart from all other gods. So in theology, we call this teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. And this word doesn't appear in the Bible, and for that reason it has caused a great deal of perplexity. And it is of vital importance to understand what we mean when we say that God is three in one, or triune, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So first we must define the word Trinity, which can cause some confusion. It is important to understand that we do not mean that there are three gods, Okay, so this is first and foremost what Trinity is not. That is the meaning that there are three gods. That is polytheism. All right, so it's very clear that there is one God and that God is one. That is in Deuteronomy 6.4. Neither can we say that God has three persons or that he is made up of three parts, and that's, again, that's another heresy, and that's called modalism. So we must say that God is three. So God's triunity is what he is, not what he is composed of. So in other words, Christianity affirms that there is but one God who's made up of three persons, it might still seem rather confusing, so we must look at the Bible to see how we arrive at this teaching. And so, um, in other words, the word Trinity itself does not appear in the Bible. We must extrapolate from the Bible um, who God is and um, what it means that God is three in one. Okay, so when we begin to read the Bible and start in the book of Genesis, we don't get the full picture of who God is. God shows himself gradually throughout the books of the Bible, and that's what we call a progressive revelation. So we get just um, rudimentary glimpses of God, 
and we and we and we gradually progress to a more fuller revelation till we get to the New Testament, and then we get a clear picture of who God is. So the Old Testament shows the Israelites who their God is, but the Israelites themselves don't have a full picture of their God. So the only hint of God's plurality can be found in the creation story. So knowing that God is, is, is more than one, it can be extrapolated from, from the Genesis story. Um, where it says, let us make mankind in our image, Genesis 1.26. And in the third chapter, God said, the man has now become like one of us, in Genesis 3.22. So, you know, a lot of scholars have said, well, because it's imperial language, right? It, it is like, like a king talking uh, in the third person about himself. Uh, I don't really think that that is the way it is. Um, God indeed is um, talking about who he is as father, son, and spirit. So the picture, though, is, is still rather blurry, but with time, it becomes more and more apparent that God consists of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, according to the Old Testament, God, as a being who is involved in the world, works through the Spirit, the wisdom, and the Word. And so, um, Genesis 1, verse 1 to 3 now, mind you, the early readers did not read it as such and interpreted God as they saw him. This is clear in their interpretation of the Spirit of God as Ruach, who they saw as the power or breath of God. The Spirit of God was also associated with the wisdom of God, mostly articulated as God's law. <clears throat> See, for example, the, the book of Proverbs, especially chapter eight, chapters eight and nine, where we see wisdom personified. So it's providing God's spirit is providing a structure to live by. You see here. Um, so when when the Israelites were just just articulating and, and interpreting the scriptures and or, or what God was saying, they. They interpreted it as they saw it, right? So they, they, and we can't blame them for that because they only have a small, little picture. You can just just imagine, okay, looking through a peephole. All right, it's just you can look straight ahead, and your peripheral vision is rather limited, so you can't see a whole lot um, other than what's in front of you, right? So. Uh, with progressive uh, revelation, it is the, the the peephole, so to speak, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, until you pretty well, uh, till the door f flings uh, uh, wide open, and you can see outside, and you can, can see everything that is that is happening around you, and you see who God is, so to speak, right? So the Word of God, as it is mentioned in Genesis. Um, 
was a means by which God communicated in creation. So in the beginning, and in, in, in God created and God spoke things into being. So right. So with the benefit of the New Testament, and especially John one one, we understand that this word is a person. So when God spoke into being, used the word, um, we see that in John one one, and we see this also in in other uh, passages of the Bible where God says that God created everything through His Son, through the Word. So the Old Testament picture does not give us a clear indication of God as triune, but the building blocks for further development are present. So it all becomes so much clearer when we continue into the New Testament. So in the Gospels, we are confronted with a person, namely the person of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of John sheds some light on this Old Testament concept of the Word of God. And John begins his gospel with an important theological statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. Now we understand that the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ are one and the same. So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is also very clear that we now have the Father and the Son, who are equally to be worshipped because they are one. And Paul says to the Christian in Corinth, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Okay, you see the connection here, right? So Jesus, therefore, is equated with God. So we have God and we have the Son. And so already we, we get a better picture, but not very clear how this triune God is, is, um, is put together, so to speak, right? So we, we have... God the Father is very clear, God the Creator, as Paul would, would actually refer him to, God the Creator, and then God the Son. So in the New Testament, we are also confronted with the personhood of the Holy Spirit. That, that's just, again, that is a gradual development. Again, in the Gospel of John, Jesus called the Spirit the Counselor who will come to perform duties such as guiding believers into the truth and proving the world to be in the wrong about sin and judgment, John sixteen seven. Additionally, Jesus claims that he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell the disciples what is yet to come. John 16, 12, and 13. Those are the characteristics and duties of the Holy Spirit that Jesus mentions here cannot be attributed to a force or a wind or, or like, like what, what, how they interpreted the Spirit to be in the Old Testament. Right? There are some characteristics that are, can only be attributed to a personal being. So, um, 
we can conclude then that from the Old and New Testament that the Father is personal, the Son is equal to the Father, and that the Spirit who is sent by the Son and the Father is equal to both. So all persons, all personal beings, right, have divine functions from creation, the saving work of God, to recreation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, while not explicitly mentioned as such in the Bible, is nevertheless implicitly laid out. So the firm teaching that God is three in one is not a teaching that was developed immediately by the early Christians. Like surprisingly, right, we we don't get all these doctrines ready-made. We um, it it took a while. It, it took actually hundreds of years before we actually get teachings that we recognize as as normative, right? So for many decades, the teaching of the Trinity was not well formulated. It was not that the early Christians did not believe that the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were one God. It was just not solidly articulated as a definite Trinitarian formulation. It was not until the 4th century that the theologians were forced to think more deeply about this issue. Using a biblical teaching would be more thought about in the face of an exposed false interpretation, obviously, right? So it was assumed that Jesus was divine and Jesus was God and, and, and to be worshipped. They also knew that the, um, that the Spirit of God was a personal being worthy to be worshipped. Right, so and they also knew, of course, assumed already in the Old Testament that God, the Creator, was Yahweh, the divine being worthy to be worshipped. But of course, it, it it was assumed, and all Christians kind of assumed that they did not have a, uh, a a specific doctrine formulated as such because it was assumed. Um, but if, if someone would deny the very fact that Jesus, for instance, was divine, the early church fathers needed to think through that teaching and say, well, yeah, well, yes, we, we assume this now, but how do we put it together so that everybody kind of like is on the same page, so to speak, right? So... Um, it wasn't until there were those who would deny that God was triune that the early theologians start thinking more about this and start formulating a detailed uh, doctrine that everyone could adhere by. So if you were a Christian, you must adhere to such and such a doctrine. So right now, if you are a Christian, you adhere to the doctrine of the Trinity. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, obviously you're not a Christian. Okay, so um, you need to be 
reacquainted with what and who God is. So in the early church, in the early centuries of the church, it was the same way. So a bishop by the name of Arius proposed that for God to be God, he cannot be shared with anything. So he believed that Jesus was not God, but that he was the first created being. So there was a time when he was not. So this makes Jesus less than the Father because a created being cannot have the same essence as its creator. Right? Now, Arius would try, um, did not deliberately try to minimize um, who Jesus was, per se. He tried to protect the divine importance of the Father. Right, so, if God is really God, then he cannot share anything of his divinity with someone else. So, when we worship Jesus, it was not because he was divine, but he was unique in the sense that he was the first created being, Arius would say. Now, the question, of course, becomes, and the early church fathers were, were asking that same question, was, can a created being rescue other created beings from sin? Is a created being worthy of worship? The disciples certainly did not believe that. Like early Christian theologians certainly did not believe that either. So a Christian bishop and theologians, a theologian, St. Athanasius, took Arius to task and together with other theologians formulated a Trinitarian teaching in line with how the Bible describes the Godhead, the Son and the Spirit of the same essence with the Father. Essence, by essence, we mean God stuff. Okay, so the doctrine or this teaching was formulated in the Christian statement of faith, a creed called the, the Nicene Creed, named after the city in which the theologians denounced Arianism as a false teaching. Now, it wasn't until 83-81, around that time, that Arius' teaching was fully declared as heresy and that the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, as written down in the Nicene Creed, was approved. Now, again, you know, I, I, I just say this, and I, I can just about say this in, in three full sentences, but remember, um, formulating a particular doctrine in the face of opposition, uh, because Arius was no slouch, okay, he, he, uh, he had his share of followers, and even Constantine, the emperor, um, was one who would agree with Arius. So it, it was a battle. It was a battle to actually say, you know, hey, you're wrong, because this is what the scriptures are saying, right? Because... The very essence of Christianity 
was hung in the balance. So um, if we if we think about it, right? If Athanasius would have given up at one point, we'd all be Arians. We'd all believe that Jesus was not fully God and was a created being, contrary to what the what Jesus was saying, um, what God was saying, and what the disciples were saying, and Paul was saying. Right, this is important stuff. Okay, Athanasius must get this right. So, um, during the the formulation of of the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is indeed um, the Son of God, God Himself, worthy to be worshipped, fully divine and fully human. Athanasius must put his foot down and must formulate this correctly. Now, we know that Arianism really never died out and is still a teaching of what is what we call today the Jehovah Witnesses. The Christian church, however, owes a lot to these early theologians such as Athanasius, who stood up to the false teachings and consulted the Bible to arrive at, to arrive at the right teaching of a difficult concept such as the Trinity. So when we talk about God's character, we realize now that all members of the Trinity possess these characteristics in the same measure. And that's important to note. Okay, so God, and we, we talk about God's attributes, and we talk about that some more in another podcast, God's attributes, we must also um, attribute these characteristics to the second person of the Trinity, that is Jesus Christ, and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. All three are equal. God is so-and-so, and Jesus is equally so-and-so, and the Spirit is equally so-and-so. So therefore, um, they are worthy of our worship. Now, when we pray, we are praying to God the Father, okay, because we are we are able to, as the, as the Old Testament makes clear, we are able to approach God, but we can only approach God through the person of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. So when we pray, we pray to God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons are equally present in all aspects of, um, of, of the salvation history. So as we shall see, Jesus is present in creation, and God spoke and light into being, right? Use the word. The power, the spirit, was the power 
who hovered over the deep. So all three were present and were active in creation. All three persons were present in redemption. Of course, Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son, right? closely in communication with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see in Jesus' baptism. Then, of course, we, we, um, all three persons are equally present in recreation. God calls us, Jesus redeems us, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So all three persons are available. So it is of utmost important, important that, uh, that we um, recognize God as triune, Father, Son, and Spirit.